This month, we're going to be exploring the subject of substance abuse or addiction and the impact that it has on families and kids especially. My guest tonight is Dr. Louise Zubrod. Louise is a psychologist with 28 years of experience. She's in private practice here in Portland. She works primarily with women, but also with couples and groups. Louise is a mother, a stepmother, a grandmother, and a mother-in-law. She has a particular interest and expertise in the impact of alcoholism on families. Welcome, Louise. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. Yeah, glad to have you at Safe Space. I want to ask you right off the bat, how did you get interested in the subject of alcoholism and families? Well, I, I think that it started when I was probably in my 30s and waking up to the fact that I had come from a less than perfect family myself. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me and many, many other people, people like Claudia Black were starting to do work and talk about what happens with family members, especially children, when a parent has a problem with substance abuse. And uh, I can remember my sister and I going to a huge conference in Boston with Claudia Black and thinking, this is amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it went from there. Once I had been exposed to that kind of teaching, I realized and was lucky to have someone in my very own family to talk about it with, mm-hmm. that our family had had those characteristics. Uh, what's amazing is that having grown up with it, it wasn't until you were in your 30s right. that you actually realized what it was. Well, uh, I started to think about it when I was in my 20s, and I had children right out of um, college. And when the families would gather, they my children were not seeing their grandparents without alcohol. And it uh. made me very sad that they that alcohol was such an, a part of their experience of their grandparents. Of mm-hmm. course, in true child of alcoholics, I was thinking about the effects on someone else rather than on myself. Uh-huh, right. So that's a characteristic we'll come back to. Yes. Uh-huh. So as you began to reflect on your own experience, um, what was it like for you growing up in a family where alcohol was so important? Well, I think uh, I should say that the particular kind of alcoholic family I came from, um, which some people call a looking good family, uh-huh. we didn't we didn't have people in jail. Uh, we didn't do that kind of thing. People, my, my dad got up and went to work in the morning and so forth. Where it showed up a lot was on weekends and holidays, which is a real pervasive problem, but a very significant problem for families of alcoholics because it's where their rituals become enmeshed with themes of alcoholism. Uh-huh. So it's not just... Um, Easter in my religion of origin, which was the highest holy day, was the day when the extended family adults could give up giving up alcohol for Lent. Oh, I see. So we, 
trotted off to church with our little patent leather shoes and pocketbooks and came home and and then the families would gather and there would be a lot of alcohol uh-huh. consumed. I see. So for you, Easter became associated with people getting drunk. Sure. Easter, uh-huh. Christmas, uh, vacations. And when and for you, when did you know when your parent was drunk? I mean, could you tell? And if so, how could you tell? Um, there was tense. There might be arguments between the adults. There was uh-huh. tension. Yeah. Um, I think we were worried that something bad would happen and tried to make ourselves scarce, that kind of thing. Uh, so you could tell that something was different and you could feel that it could be a little out of control. Yeah. And so I think as a child of an alcoholic family, I developed that kind of hypervigilance we talk about as therapists and um, an ability to sort of read the energy in a room Mm -hmm. when you walk in that really is overdeveloped. Children shouldn't have to do that. Right. So you were monitoring what's going on here. Is this safe? Yes, exactly. Is something bad going to happen? And not, Uh not assuming that things were safe. That's one of the big characteristics, too. There's a lack of trust. Um, My children, who have, fortunately for all of us, great senses of humor, Mm -hmm. they like to uh, poke fun at me because I prepare for a trip down the street. I might pack water or (laughs) whatever. And I say, well, you know, the universe might not provide, so I, I have to be... Sure, that that's taken care of. Right. So it's trust in a very, in a really existential way. Like, will I be all right? Yes, exactly. W- will it be safe for me? Yes. Uh-huh. That's very interesting. I haven't heard that named so specifically, but that's a long-standing legacy. So yeah. here you are now, years later, and your kids tease you about this thing that got started so long ago. And if you try to inhibit that, if you try to leave the water behind, does it make you anxious? It might. I haven't actually challenged that much. I see. You just bring the water. I just bring everything <laughs> I everywhere. See. I see. But you you can laugh at yourself. Oh, you know what yes. it's about. Yes. That's the, that's the great part about healing is that you can say, oh, look, I have that particular wart or funny thing. And, uh, and it's, it's harmless. Yes, and you can in, sort of almost enjoy your quirks. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, that sounds great. I want to talk more a little about the healing aspect of it toward the end of the show. For now, I want to st- ask you a little bit about how extensive is this problem? You know, you had this experience, but how many other people are growing up in families affected by alcohol? Well, a, a huge pro- proportion of the of the population. One of the figures that comes up again and again in the literature, is that there are 76 million Americans 12 years old and older who have alcoholism in their families. Uh And that doesn't even get to the people who are under 12. Under 12, exactly. Which would presumably double the figure. And it also doesn't get at friends, uh, beloved friends that you care about maybe Uh uh, afflicted with. Addictions. So 76 million people have an immediate family relative who is 
is out of control with alcohol. And their experience of family as well as of the world is skewed by that. Yeah, so let's talk more about that. What are some of the other ways that it gets skewed? Well, I think um, someone talked to me recently about this, and she was talking about the person, the alcoholic, and in her family, and she said that the addiction is just, it's like this vortex that sucks all the energy in. Hmm. So the energy is not available for things that are needed in everyday life, like being really present in your children's lives. If it's a parent, for example, a mother or a father who has um, a, a problem with addiction, they do not have the energy, nor does the family, because the non-alcoholic parent may be much more oriented towards the alcoholic parent and towards maintaining basic things like getting bills paid and mm-hmm. income in and so forth. And so the children don't get... Um, the kind of attention that children need and certainly need to succeed. Yeah, and so when you say that the non-alcoholic parent is focused on the the one who's drinking, is that because they're trying to manage it and they're scared and they're trying to act in ways that might prevent it? I mean, they're sort of getting all caught up in trying to diminish the harm. Exactly, Yeah. exactly. Diminish it within the family, um, do damage control in terms of how the family looks in the in the neighborhood, in the community. Keeping the secret is enormous. Mm-hmm. Tell me about more about that. Well, I I for some reason or other have always remembered this story of Claudia Black's that I heard so many years ago. She talked about a child telling her that they had run out the door and found their father passed out on the front lawn. Mm. So they ran back into the house and up to the mom and said, Daddy's sick, Daddy's sick. And the mother said, what's going on? Well, he's out on the front lawn. And the mother said, oh, he's not sick. He's camping. (laughs) So it's crazy-making for the child. Exactly. So their reality is completely distorted and denied. Yes. And so then there gets to be a lack of self-trust on any number of levels, both in terms of, am I wrong? This person, maybe the child even says, are you okay? Mommy or daddy mean, have you been drinking? And the parent says, fine. And they're staggering or slurring. Right. So they, they get this break then between what their their senses, their perception is telling them is reality and what the person is telling them. Exactly. And then they don't know how to who to believe and whether they can trust what they're seeing. And as you know, children know when something's wrong. Right. They may not have the specifics, but they'll be asking what's wrong. Right. And when they're told nothing, everything's fine, I always kind of get my antenna up with an, when an adult comes in saying things like they're fine. Right. That word fine is a red flag for you. It sure is. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, I remember I was fine for many years. Mm-hmm. And really what that meant was that I didn't think I should be looking at my own emotional life. Okay. Say what you mean by that. And how come? Why would you not? 
Well, because the adults really didn't have the emotional availability to be very interested in my available life, so my emotional life. So I learned that it wasn't particularly interesting and that really what was was what what was what what was interesting was what was going on with the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm talking tonight to Dr. Louise Zubrod about the impact of alcoholism on families. So you were learning that paying attention to your emotional world was not a value. Exactly. And was it even shameful or bad? I mean, was there a prohibition against it? There wasn't an explicit prohibition, but there was in the sense that it wasn't happening. I mean, I tried pretty much everything to get attention periodically. I tried acting out. Yes. And I would get negative attention for that, and then that really wasn't very comfortable. So I tried achieving in school and would get a little bit of attention. But it's incredibly difficult to be high achieving in school when you don't have a lot of parental involvement. Mm-hmm. And um, so o- over time, I think that I really became very comfortable with not being in the limelight. I see. In fact, if you were saying before that you tried to make yourself scarce when people were drunk, did it feel safer to not be in the limelight? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. But then, of course, what does that do to your own potential? I mean, ways that you might really shine. So those kind of get muted or... Exactly. ...rendered more invisible. Yeah. When I was doing my uh, doctoral work at Boston University, someone there was doing a um, a dissertation on female gold medal Olympic women. Uh-huh. Athletes. And one of the variables that was always present was a strong relationship with the father. Really? How interesting. But I think it's really so clear that it's children whose parents give energy to them, time, attention, interest, encouragement, I know there's um when you talk about the the drinking as the vortex into which all the energy gets sucked. There's a a John Prine song about a guy who was addicted to a heroin, and they said there's a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes. Mm. And uh, it seems wow. feels very much like what you're talking about. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. This sort of enormously powerful vacuum that sucks everything good into it. Right. Yeah. And at the same time, um, you have the things that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be going to school. You're supposed to be making the family look good. You're not supposed to be telling the secret. Yeah, so say more about that, because secrets I know are so powerful. Did you get told you shouldn't tell the secret, or how did you learn that? Well, I think I learned it by asking uh, my parents to talk to me about the substance abuse or about why they were upset when... There wasn't an external thing that happened, but there was substance abuse. And then they might escalate into anger, and it was hard to understand. I didn't follow you when you said there wasn't an external thing that happened. I'm not sure I know what you mean. Well, for example, people who are, some people who are drinking get really angry. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, alcohol is implicated in over 80% of, 
uh, family violence in- incidents. Mm-hmm. I see. So you mean when there's no obvious trigger, right? But the person is just suddenly furious. Yes, exactly. I That's see. Exactly. And then what was really going on is that they what were was drinking. Wrong. And to ask about why would you be angry or try to understand it yeah. made them angrier. Right. So you learned that when you tried to name it or move toward it, talking about it, the reaction was one of anger. It was one of anger. Uh-huh. So you learned to keep quiet about it. Yeah. And did you ever talk about it outside, like with teachers or other parents, and feel censored for that? No, I didn't. I didn't. Do it. I, I mean, I knew this was about our family. And I uh-huh. very much grew up thinking that other people had a different kind of family where this didn't happen. And so I was embarrassed. Yeah, so there was shame. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so you imagine that, of course, now we know how many other families, in fact, this is happening. Yes, exactly. But at the time, you imagined that this was something really shameful about your family. So the secret wasn't just about your parents. It became about you. Yes. And I think the other part of that that's um, really diff- was difficult for me and is difficult for everyone in this situation is that, of course, the way children construct reality, if bad things are happening in your world, you assume that you have done something to cause it. Right. So for myself and many other people, you come out of that situation feeling guilty. And it's a kind of nonspecific, nameless, if this bad thing is happening, I must have some some part in it having happened. Yeah. So that when you say it's nonspecific and nameless, so it's this kind of low level thing that's hard to even get at. Yes. Hard to even know you're carrying it. Yes. Because it's sort of very pervasive, but chronic. Right. Yes. And somehow the feeling is that I, something bad about me, I'm not sure what it is, but right. that's why this is all happening. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. Of course, I see that in my work as I'm sure you do around yes. so many things that happen to kids. Yeah. I want to shift gears now a little bit to talk about some of the other consequences. You know, we've been focused mostly on the emotional consequences for the kids, but you mentioned 80% of family violence associated with alcoholism. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the other consequences, you know, concrete consequences for people around Sure. Sure. There's, um, for example, if, if a woman drinks when she's pregnant, there's fetal alcohol syndrome. And I, I've actually gotten to work with parents trying to parent children who've, mm. whose birth parents have been, uh, you know, alcohol involved. And, and when it's severe, and the number is something like 5,000 or so severe cases of fetal alcohol syndrome a year, and 35,000 in this country of milder it's, it's 35,000 mild fetal alcohol cases a year, a year in the U.S. Yes. Which is a huge, huge. number. Because this is not a reversible condition. It's not reversible, and it so impacts every aspect of the child's life. Maybe you could say a little bit about what the, what the impact of fetal alcohol is on well, the child. F- for me, um, the worst that could happen is that there be an attachment difficulty, and it's my understanding that often but not always, children with fetal alcohol syndrome have difficulty 
uh, with attachment. And, and why don't you explain what that is for people? Well, for example, the first, I, I think about things developmentally, and of course, the first year or two that a child is alive, their job is to learn that the world is a trustworthy place. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're talking about now babies coming in and sometimes needing to go through withdrawal and detox and then be left with pretty significant neurologic problems, hyperactivity, attentional problems, so that work, um, sustaining eye contact, all of the things we take for granted in other children are really very difficult for these children. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge cost. And I want to ask you about more. So there's fetal alcohol. So there's the risk of exposure in utero. Yes. Um, say a little bit more about family violence or violence generally. Well, uh, of course, there are alcohol affects different people differently. Actually, one point that I found just fascinating is that there is something like $7.9 billion a year in this country spent on taxable alcoholic beverages and something like $60 billion a year spent on cleaning up the problems. Mm. Meaning like treatment centers kind of thing? Treatment centers, um, physical rehabilitation from car accidents or brawls, um, criminal justice system costs. Mm -hmm. So you're saying $79 billion goes pays for the drinks, and then $60 billion cleans up the Seven, human tragedy from it. No, it's 7.9. Pays for the drinks. Oh, oh, oh. And six, 10 times as much, almost. Yes, almost. Wow, that's powerful, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it powerful? Yeah. It's such a scary thing. 80 3% of the homicides are alcohol-related. Alcohol Nationally. Nationally. 80% mm. of wife beating is alcohol-related. And as you know, alcohol is a huge factor in suicide and also in divorce. So the disruptions for families, hugely mm. powerful. The consequences um, are really staggering. Oh, enormous. Staggering. Children of alcoholics are four times more likely to become alcoholics than children in the general population. Mm -hmm. um, and family therapists would say that alcohol abuse is responsible for more family problems than any other single factor. I mean, just these huge statements. Right. It's powerful, isn't it? it? Begins to, you know, help me understand historically why people attempted prohibition. I know really? people consider it a failed experiment, but it's pretty overwhelming when you begin to take in it's the cost. Enormous. Yeah. So I want to shift gears now. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. I'm talking to Dr. Louise Zubrod about the impact of alcoholism on families. And I want to talk now about about the recovery process for kids as they grow up. You talked a little bit about your own just beginning to realize that this mm -hmm. is what's going on and how old you finally were really when you really started to get a handle on what it was. Yes. That what your experience, you know, I think it's so easy to forget that a kid growing up in a family, this is their universe. Exactly. So this is what how it is. And, and in my case, I had children young and when I was completely unrecovered mm. <laughs> from my own childhood. Right. And so when I 
you know, was going along in graduate school and started to have my own healing experiences, I started to realize that I had brought all these issues into my own created family. Oh, painful to realize that. Oh, terrible. So much worse than the other parts of it. But what was wonderful is that I was able to share my my discoveries with my children. And there really is so much good news about this. I mean, we live in a time when people are awake about alcoholism and how horrible it is and how sad it really is for everyone involved, right. that, that everyone involved here is a victim, no matter what the behavior is. Right. And so that helps. There's there's some way that there isn't such a taboo on the subject. Exactly. That we can talk about it now. That we can have compassion. Yeah. So, but the other thing is that, uh, you know, you start, there are some wonderful studies being done. One that I read by the National Association for Children of Alcoholics talked about how the level of dysfunction or and or resiliency on the part of the non-alcoholic parent is the key factor in determining whether there will be problems in the children or not, or to what extent there'll be problems. So if the if the the dad, for example, is not is is still being captured by alcohol, but the mom gets herself to a recovery program or therapy or treatment for families of alcoholics, she can bring to the children the benefits of that, and they can break the, you know, the not healthy rules of the alcoholic family, like keeping the secret. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the unhealthy rules of the alcoholic family. So one of them is to, to keep a secret, to, keep to not secret. talk about it. Really, what we're saying to children when we do that is, this is such a terrible thing that it can't be spoken. Right. And when we do talk about it, we say, this is a very bad thing, and and your poor parent has uh, struggles with it, and it's not so bad that we can't talk about it. Here are mm-hmm. some things we can do. Right. And and that includes not allowing the rituals to go down the tubes. But uh, I met this wonderful, I had really have had wonderful experiences in my own time in Al-Anon, which is such a healing, gentle recovery program and teaches the person to take care of themselves, even though their partner, parent, whatever, is not well. Uh, but I met a woman there who uh, would say to her husband, who was still then drinking, here's what we're going to do about Christmas. If you choose to drink, we will go to my mother's. And if you don't, then we'll stay home with you. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And so, and she said that with compassion and really permission giving. Do what you need to do. And we're going to do what you need to do. So you don't have to worry about that. We're going to have a good Christmas anyway. Right. So when you said don't let the rituals go down the tubes, that's what you mean. I mean, rescue, rescue Christmas, rescue graduations. Don't let right. the alcohol become the central issue. Let the family values be explicit mm-hmm. in those things. Yeah. So, so two of the rules we're breaking right now. So one is 
break the secret, talk about it. Another is take care of the family rituals that have meaning for the kids. Exactly. And if that means leaving the drinker behind and going and celebrating somewhere else, then then do it. Yes. Are there other things? Yeah, I think one is to really be aware of all the wonderful programs there are for families. My, uh, I, in my own codependent way, which means I was addicted to the whole alcoholic system in, in, in its unhealthy way. But I dragged my children when I first went to Al-Anon, which is so not Al-Anon teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but they sometimes will drop in and they see it as a wonderful option for themselves. Mm-hmm. So going into some kind of group treatment at Al-Anon partly is wonderful because it's everywhere and it's free. It's free and people are loving and caring and not there to talk about the bad old alcoholic person. Uh-huh. So it's not just a session to, to trash someone else, but it's to focus on self-care. Exactly. You mentioned the word codependency, which is talked a lot about. And very earlier, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned, of course, that you were more focused on the impact on your kids and on yourself, which is one of the characteristics I think of with codependency. Could you say a little bit more about what we mean by codependency and how people are in recovery from that? Well, um, we become addicted as well. Only what we're addicted to is the alcoholic or their drink, their relationship with their drink. And we substitute that for having a life for ourselves. Uh, so we, sub- we substitute being totally focused on them and caught up in the craziness and the chaos with getting exercise, taking your kids to the park. Exactly. Doing having joy. Being right. with friends. Right. So that makes sense. I realize we are out of time, and I want to ask you, are there resources that you'd like to share with people, how they might find an Al-Anon meeting sure. or something like that? Yes. On, online, if you look up Alcoholics Anonymous, you will find meetings for families, children of alcoholics. All of the various 12-step programs are listed there. There are online meetings. Oh, wonderful. The, the meetings have the literature. They have wonderful daily meditation books that mm. are just very helpful and lots of good literature on the subject. And if someone wants to talk to you a little bit more about this, Dr. Zubrat, how could they reach you? Well, I'm in the book. I'm here in Portland. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. It's been a pleasure. If uh, My thanks tonight to Goober for mixing the sound and to Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or suggest a new topic for the show, please email me at drannewmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday, I will be hosting Dennis Embry speaking about prevention and substance abuse for adolescents in particular. Mm. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison. <laughs>